with Cats and Kittens. We are back with another very special self-quarantine, stay-at-home episode of the Brando Cast. But, you know, I've said so many of these shows that we've been doing for the last few months during the pandemic have been special. But this one is truly special because on October 6th, 2020, we lost a giant. We lost an icon. We lost a genius. Those words are thrown around too much, especially in the city of Los Angeles. But truly, the day that we lost Eddie Van Halen is the day that we lost one of the special ones, someone who completely changed a genre of music and invented a style of playing that has been often imitated and never equaled since he exploded on the scene in Pasadena, California, oh so long ago. And with me today, a guy who I love so very much, a guy who brought the thunder the last time he was on the show, and a guy who reached out and said to me via text yesterday, we got to talk about Eddie. And that is Mr. Justin Warfield. Hello, dude. This is uh this is a big honor. This is this is heavy but also like just rad. It's just exciting and it's uh it's so necessary. It's like when I texted you emergency pod. <laughs> Some of the sports guys, you know, that I follow when something just you know, foundation shaking happens in sports, they go off their normal schedule and they're like we're doing one right now. And uh, I just wanted to talk about it and just sort of commiserate and share. And there was no one else that, like you said, I could do it with other than you. So thank you for having me on for this hallowed day. 2020 has been horrific (laughs) for so many different reasons. The pandemic, you got the big orange jackass. I lost Neil Peart. We both lost Kobe. Yeah. And now we've lost Eddie. I mean, Kobe and Eddie... (laughs) In the same year, it, it's so cruel. We are being tested on a spiritual level yeah. <laughs> profoundly. You know, you've been here so long that, you know, I consider you just an adopted Angelino. And there's just certain people that you identify the city with. You know what I mean? And God, Tom Petty was one, and it's all tied in right. And even though he was Gainesville in Florida, he was as as Los Angeles and Valley as it got. And Kobe is another. And even though he's from you know Marion, Pennsylvania, and then you know Eddie, man, and you know a Dutch kid from Pasadena. It's like these are our these are our Mount Rushmore of of you know that that should be up on Mulholland and to <laughs> to have lost to have lost two in the same year and three within the span of 3 years is really really just like sort of earth shattering well i you know you've brought up a really amazing point uh, when justin was on the podcast earlier in the year right before the pandemic hit we were able to do it in person and have the best time i brought justin on to talk about songs about Los Angeles. And so we got into a very deep discussion about songs that just embody the city of LA that we both love so much. If you haven't listened to that episode, please, when we're done here today, go and listen to that right away. But I have always said, when you think about bands that define Los Angeles, and let's just start with the Beach Boys, Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone, bands that just embody the spirit, it's almost impossible to top Van Halen because they were from fucking Pasadena, California. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and a a friend 
has a pod and a radio show and another like classic Angelino, Morty Coyle was on that and he was having a debate with him and it was two real, you know, one, one guy not from here, but may as well be Shane Powers and, and, uh, and Morty Coyle having a debate about who the greatest American rock band of all time was. And I was listening to the pod and I was on an airplane flying and I download the pod and it was so hard not to like having the ability to call in and talk to them. And so I forget where they landed, but I remember doing it in my head and going, who's the greatest American rock band? And most of the great rock bands of all time are British. Yep. You go down the list, just like all your favorite bands, yeah, they're British. You think what you want, you're like, yeah, yeah, but they're British. So when you really comes to American rock, it's tricky. And what I came up with was, without a doubt, the evidence in the body of work, in the cultural impact, in the size, in the hits, in the musicianship, in every aspect it has to be Van Halen. And I called up another born and raised Angelino, Michelangelos, and I said, dude, there's an argument for Van Halen being the greatest American rock band of all time. And so when you really look at it and you say, okay, you know, you have your Stones, you have your Zeppelin, you have your Beatles, you have all your like rock bands. And they're, I don't consider like pop groups. It's like rock and roll bands. Who's rock and roll? There's no one more rock and roll than the Stones. Zeppelin was a great rock band. Um, I don't really get into the prog rock debate about all that stuff is great. But when you just talk about like the power of rock and roll, I was saying to my buddy, Michael, I said, listen, man, if James would have sustained from nothing shocking and ritual and continued on with that legacy, even two more records at that level, there's an argument that you could stack that up against just about any rock band because it really had everything right? But it's also an art rock band, right? So it's pretty heady. So then you can make an argument that the Heartbreakers are the greatest rock and roll band of all time. But ultimately, what we're talking about is what is, I think Tom Petty is perhaps the greatest American songwriter ever, right? And so if you, what we're really in love with there, even though the Heartbreakers are one of the best bands ever, we're really in love with the songwriting and the voice, right? So if you think about what constitutes a rock band of usually four dudes, right? We know it's a pretty male-centric thing. And there's like a, a front man, as they said in a almost famous, you know, a guitar player um, with mystique or, <laughs> and a front man with looks or whatever they said, right? There is a, there's an archetype. And when you think about it, from Van Halen 1 through 1984, it's the greatest American rock band ever. It's just, it's, it's not debatable. It's like you had the front man, you had the greatest guitar player, maybe ever, right? You had the most ferocious rhythm section that so slept on. You had harmonies, you had songs, you had hits, you had groundbreaking music videos, you had stadium tours, you had worldwide appeal. Every metric that you can gauge, Van Halen is, is kind of, you can't really debate the fact that they're they're the greatest American rock band. I mean, you the catalog no, speaks for itself. You will get no pushback from me because of my age. I am fortunate to have seen Women and Children Tour. Wow. Fair Warning Tour. They skipped Albuquerque, New Mexico for the Diver Down Tour because we weren't big enough. But they came back for two shows in 1984. And I have always said, when they came to Albuquerque in 1984, the biggest band in America at that time. With a colossal record, mm -hmm. it was the most important rock show that had ever come to New Mexico to that point. Because all the big bands skipped us. The Stones skipped us. The Who skipped us. Bruce skipped us. Mm 
But the thing that sold it for me was the live show. It was a party. It was dangerous. Mm-hmm. It was fun and life-affirming. Yeah. Uh, they were untouchable. Um, so without further ado, I'm just going to read Justin some historical blurbs. And and I know that throughout this discussion, we're going to come into, you know, we're going to just get into all the reasons that we love the band so much. Can I just throw one thing out? Just, you just sure one, can. One, just, I don't want you to go off on it. I just want you to just take this with you. Yeah. What killed off that type of rock, whether it's VH or GNR, is the one-two punch of Nirvana and Weezer. And what's ironic is those bands were influenced by the bands that they destroyed. But once you had Smells Like Teen Spirit and the Sweater Song, it was as if the audience stepped on stage and there was no longer a place for somebody doing the splits midair. And it had to be somebody who was relatable. And even though Rivers is a shredder, right, who probably wouldn't be who he is without Eddie. And even though, you know, that music influenced those two songwriters and groups. Ultimately, they laid waste to any chance of anyone like Axel or <laughs> Diamond Dave or anyone of that ilk to ever, ever take the stage again. I'm going to say one more thing to you, and I'm going to let yeah. you think about this, yeah, because yeah. I agree with that completely. But I would also throw yeah. in Public Enemy and NWA. Because right. of my age, right. I was never into that kind of music, because by the time I got to college, I was strictly punk rock. Mm-hmm. That's when hip-hop really broke. Right. And the younger kids, the younger high school kids, yeah. were listening to that as much as they were listening to rock. And I think that that was another weird demarcation point in the history of popular music in this country, where high school kids started right. listening to dance records right. rather than, okay, who's going to take the place of Van Halen, Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses? It's just another weird little mix. I've I have thought about and it also that point. killed it also killed off Michael Jackson. I mean that's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because that's what happened. You know, I mean that really yeah. is what happened. Yeah. Oh, I mean Nirvana, Nirvana, Nirvana dethroned Michael Jackson. You know, and it's just so odd that Eddie Van Halen is a part of the history of Michael. All right, Eddie and Alex Van Halen were born in Amsterdam back in the mid fifties. Sons to Dutch musician Jan Van Halen and Indonesian-born Indo Eugenia Van Beers. The family moved to Pasadena in 1962 to avoid the discrimination the family felt in the Netherlands. In 1972, the Van Halen brothers formed a band called Genesis, featuring Eddie on lead vocals and guitars, Alex on drums, and Mark Stone on bass. They initially rented a sound system from John Muir High School graduate David Lee Roth but decided to save money by letting him join the band as their lead vocalist. By 1974, the band replaced Stone with local bass dude Michael Anthony. The band changed its name to Mammoth when they discovered there was already a Genesis out there, and they eventually changed their name to Just Van Halen. They played local gigs at high schools and backyard parties, and by the spring of 1975, they were the regular Tuesday night band at Myron's Ballroom, which was located at Grand and Olympic. All right, Justin, you've got so much to chew on just in that little thing. We got two multicultural dudes. Yeah. Growing two mixed kids growing up in Pasadena in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, which is I th- which David Lee Roth talks about 
um, if you've heard David Lee Roth on the Mark Maron podcast or the Joe Rogan podcast, he talks about like the the fucking attitude that Eddie and Alex had as kids because they got ridiculed in the Netherlands because right. they were mixed because their mom was Indonesian. And they got guff in Pasadena because they spoke funny. And he has long said that that attitude they had just gave them a, a kind of a fuck you mentality to the world that was such a core part of their musicianship. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Not only the chip on the shoulder, but the idea that like um, the insularity of feeling like they weren't at home in their home in, in, in uh, Amsterdam and then to come or in Holland rather, and then to come to Pasadena and feel like outsiders, why not just go to the basement and not have to deal with people? Why not just have just you and me? And there's so many great bands that come up where they're brothers and it's like, one's playing one instrument. Hey, you're better at this one, take this, as these guys did, right? And it's like one of those things where it's like, if the outside world is giving them too much shit, it's just like, yeah, like, why go out? Let's just stay in here and hone our chops and like speak our own language, right? And I think that that, that's just that bond is totally unfuckwithable. I mean, it's so strong, it's so deep. It's like, and you can hear it, man. I mean, you can hear it. It's crazy. The other thing that's so interesting about like that that sort of the origin story is that Roth and the Van Halen brothers were rivals. The Van Halen brothers went to Pasadena High School, and Roth went to John Muir. Uh, which Roth claimed was back then was more mixed. So he was listening to soul music and, you know, the early disco, that like early disco in the, in the very early seventies where the Van Halen brothers just wanted to rock. They were playing deep purple. They were playing mountain and all these other, but but, but classically trained to some degree because of their father, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. They were playing instruments right off the bat. I think Eddie actually started playing drums right away. And Alex was like, no, 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 no. That's, that's, those are mine. You give me those sticks. You know, like they even had that, that own competition within their own family. But it's just, it's just so interesting to me. And I wonder if you could just give us, just give us a little bit of your own insight into like, what do you think Pasadena was like back then? You know, it's interesting because like Pasadena is something that's, it's so specific and there's so many weird, it's not something that's entirely familiar to me, but I've been around it on the periphery my whole life, right? So it was later that I realized that there was really, really, really old money there, right? Okay. That it was sort of like, it was like Brentwood Northeast, right? (laughs) And so when you have that, like why on earth, unless it was something academic or some blind spot that I had there, like why on earth did the Van Halen settle there? But for for Dave, it's like he's a part of that wealth of Pasadena. And there is great disparity in Pasadena. I mean, there's the hood in Pasadena, there's Altadena, there's, I mean, it's one of the areas that's so divided in a strange sort, it's, it's so segregated there and it's so divided by by the quality of schools too. I mean, like one block away, you're going to the best school in the area, you know, that's got an A rating and then you live a blo- another block down and it's like a low C and you don't want to send your kids there. So I would imagine that just knowing Los Angeles in the seventies, 
I mean, Los Angeles in the 70s felt like the 60s, right? I mean, that's the truth. It's like, I think we talked about that before, that like, there's always buildings and holdovers that are 10 or 20 years old before they get plowed over for a mini mall. So my understanding and remembrance of LA in the 70s was that it still looked like the 60s. And there was a lot of 50s stuff around. So I think culturally, Pasadena in 73 probably felt like 63. (laughs) I mean, it was probably pretty white, pretty repressed, pretty straight laced. And so to have this sort of like rich kid freak in Diamond Dave who is like, you know, screaming Jay Hawkins or whatever trip he was laying down. And then to have these guys who are playing classical piano and probably violin and like beating the shit out of drums in their basement and wanted to kind of be Zeppelin or Deep Purple. I mean, that's a crazy confluence of styles and cultures. That conflict within the band, we're yeah. going to get into this later, but it was there from the beginning. It was because you there. had two conflicting styles that would make the band successful. Yeah. But, you know, as a musician, what is that like to create with people who aren't exactly on the same page as you? Because they, there's a cultural difference, and then there's, a, there's a, a difference of taste and style and sensibility. I mean, it's interesting because you look at bands like the Beatles, and even though the Beatles were squeaky clean in their image, they were, you know, Liverpool was like, you know dock workers. It was like Sheffield. It was like the north of England and it was rough and they would fight. And these were guys that were hanging out in Hamburg and it was like hookers and fights and and doing, you know, pills to stay up all night and play four or five sets of music. And then the Rolling Stones, um, you know, were considered the bad boys. But I mean, these guys were just posh. I mean, it was like business school accountants. I mean, Mick still does the books for the band. These guys were upper crust. I mean, even like, even Brian. So, Usually, the bands are all of the same social strata. And so, when you do have that, oh no, it's divided. And I never really knew where Michael Anthony stood in that sort of like social sphere thing, right? But to me, the interesting thing about Van Halen is that you can, and, and, and it speaks to exactly what you're talking about, is the idea that you can have something as punishing and fierce as Unchained, and then the bridge... You get, you know, you get some leg to for sure. Like he could just take a moment and like you could be as menacing as DOA, right? Mm-hmm. And then he could just take you straight to like vaudeville, um, Catskills, and Vegas <laughs> on the bridge, and then take you right back to the back alleyway of like the Atomic Punk, and that that's the whole band to me, the whole thing. And you said it when you were talking about live, that it was a party, that it was dangerous, that it was life-affirming. Like, most bands don't have that sort of breadth, right? It's like Zeppelin is arguably, like, the greatest British rock band of, like, rock and roll and not, like, hits and stuff. But, like, they were just the blueprint and the archetype for every kind of rock band that came after, right? But ultimately, like, it's we're not, like, falling in love with them because we want to hear about The Hobbit. We're just, like... <laughs> <laughs> like... They, they definitely had a beautiful side, like going to California is special. And since I've been loving you is the blues and there's all these aspects, but like Van Halen, it's really one of the most disrespected bands in the history of music to me. A thousand billion percent. They're, they've never been a critic's darling. Before I forget, I have to give you props because quick tangent, Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead once said that he preferred the Beatles to the Stones because 
they were punk rock, they were working class, yeah. that John Lennon would jump off the stage at the Cavern Club, which he did once because someone screamed fag at Brian Epstein. John <laughs> Lennon jumped off the stage and beat the shit out of that guy. Wow. And the Stones were posh. He said the exact same thing that yeah. you did. They were art school kids. Absolutely. It's such, it's such an incredible, uh, it's such an incredible the, point. You know, and, the Oasis and Blur, same thing. I mean, like, same you thing. know. Yep. You know what I mean? Soccer hooligans versus the, the smart rich kids from yeah. the cool school up the yeah. street. Van Halen increased their popularity by passing out flyers at local high schools. This sort of self-promotion soon built them a major following from Pasadena to Hollywood. The band got its first break in 1975 when it was hired to play at Gazzari's on the Sunset Strip. Bill Gazzari initially claimed Van Halen was too loud and wouldn't hire them, but their new managers, Mark Algori and Mario Miranda, took over for the club's hiring and booked the band anyway. Rodney Bingenheimer saw Van Halen at Gazzari's in the summer of 1976 and took Gene Simmons of Kiss to see the band live. Simmons then produced a Van Halen demo tape at the Village Recorder Studios in L.A. Simmons also wanted to change the band's name to Daddy Longlegs, but the band stuck with Van Halen. However, Simmons opted out of further involvement with the band after he took the demo to Kiss Management and was told that Van Halen had no chance of making it. I got a lot for you to chew on in that little paragraph, so jump in anywhere you want. First off, Gazaris, man, that <laughs> is just... I mean, that's crazy. Um, I actually played Gazaris. <laughs> oh, uh, tell me, tell me, tell me, I tell mean, me. It was de- it was like most certainly a rap show. That would be the era that I'm talking about, where they were sort of like opened it up because a lot of places didn't want to put on rap shows. Um, they didn't want the crowd. They didn't want you know black dudes coming from other parts of town. Um, but um, sort of the, the the sort of racist cycle of Los Angeles clubs that people don't know is when a club first opens, whether it's a dance club like a place for drinks and bottle service, or whether it's a, a venue for live music. Historically in Los Angeles, it opens up and it's like on the list only. And then it's like friend of a friend. And then they're like, okay, that didn't work. We need to like make some money. Let's open it up. It's a little bit more general um, admission. And then in the end, they're like, all right, we'll let the black promoters come here and you can throw <laughs> it. Like, and I'm telling you, like, it's, it, I've seen it my entire life. It was like the clubs that started out were like super exclusive. And then by the time they're just like, and it's, it's so cooked into it. But Gazari's was at that time where it was no longer playing, like, you know, it was no longer just a rock club. There were like hip hop shows, there were dance clubs. I played Gazari's. Now, I'm having a little bit of a brain fart. Did Gazaris turn into the Key Club? Yes, it did. Okay, right. So I remember. Go- I think I went to school with with Bill Gazaris' grandson. I went to <laughs> high school with him, and so I think that's actually how I came to get the gig. Uh, yeah, so long ago. Um, yeah, I mean that's the thing that sucks about being born in '73 and being 47 I, I, compared to a millennial who's going, "Hey, man, what was it like?" fill in the blanks, right? Before yeah. you, when you could find music at a record store and not on a blog, I have 
I've touched a lot of eras, but the era that I'm not able to touch is I wasn't at The Mask. I wasn't at Madame Wong's. I wasn't at Gazari's. I didn't see Elton John at the Troub. I didn't see Van Halen at Gazari's. You know, I didn't see GNR at the Coconut Teas or whatever the thing is. And I miss those things. Same thing on the hip hop side. You know, I wasn't able to see, you know, Ice T as the house DJ, uh, MC rather, at the Radiotron in Los Angeles. Not because of age, that's because me and my dad physically couldn't find the club when we were driving <laughs> there in downtown LA in 1984. Um, but that era, that I hear about from my friends, because all my peers are like in their mid fifties, you know, and the people I grew up with that turned me on to this music and that we commiserate about it to this day are all older and were there in real time. And I just can't imagine that Los Angeles. I mean, the, the Gene Simmons connection, I mean, it's no weirder than, you know, Adam Horowitz saying to Rick Rubin, you've really got to listen to this group Public Enemy. I think yeah. there's something there. You know what I mean? It's sort of the inverse, right? It's like at the time, the Beastie Boys weren't taken seriously, and then they introduced the world to Public Enemy. Well, here was this guy, a rock god, who is now like doing Kiss in the Phantom of the Park at Magic Mountain, you know what I mean? And like doing, I was made for loving you disco songs, going, I think you should be Daddy Longlegs, and Van Halen being like, yeah, no, we're good the way we are, man. <laughs> like, well, the lore is the lore is that Gene wanted to steal Eddie to replace Ace because by the end of the seventies, Ace is just a fucking mess, right? Just a complete cocaine addict, and and that was the 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 lore out there in the world is that Gene wanted to steal Eddie, and that David Lee Roth somehow was able to stop that from happening. The other thing that I wanted to mention that's so interesting for people listening at home, uh, if you want to see who Bill Gazzari was, you have to watch Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years, <laughs> uh, which was Penelope Ferris uh, made a, a ridiculous documentary about the metal scene in L.A. Uh, it's, it's sort of the era between real metal and cheese metal, but it was shot in 1988, so Gazzari was, was still a club. And Gazzari's was a really sleazy club. It was a very sleazy sort of version of what the whiskey was. Uh, Bill Gazzari had, they had wet t-shirt contests. There was a Miss Gazzari contest that they had a few times a year. Uh, Rat broke at Gazzari's. Van Halen broke at Gazzari's. <laughs> we had Stephen Piercy from Rats on Rock Tales, uh, the show that I do with Ahmed Zappa on Sirius Radio, volume channel 106. And he told us a story that one night in Gazzari's that there was a VIP room within a VIP room. <laughs> there were secret rooms all over the place. And he said in the in the very early 80s, one night it was just him, Ozzy, and David Lee Roth. And all they were doing in that room was snorting coke and talking about aerobics. And that is why oh I God. love Los Angeles so much because that's really the only kind of thing that can ha that can't happen anywhere else in the world but here. You know, when you said talking about there's no world where I envision you were going to say aerobics, but that is so specifically 80s Los Angeles. That is incredible. Yeah. The other fun thing about this period of time and we'll we'll get into it when I read some more stuff here in a second is that also, Van Halen was playing at all these clubs along with a lot of the other sort of early L.A. punk bands like the Weirdos and the Dills were appearing on the bill and even early versions of the Go-Go's at the Whiskey on the nights that Van Halen was doing that as well. So there was a, it wasn't it wasn't really 
uh, it wasn't polarized or it wasn't, you know, there weren't real categories. There was a, just a weird soup of hard rock because hard rock in L.A. was kind of dead in the mid to late 70s. And, you know, with the explosion of the L.A. punk scene, those bands were playing at the same places. And, and it's just one of my favorite things about L.A. Well, it just it also speaks to the thing that like the like the Ramones and Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers and the New York Dolls. And the Sex Pistols are proto-punk, the birth of punk rock bands, right? Who were playing fast rock and roll. Like, ultimately, it's not Black Flag. It's not Hardcore. It's not the Circle Jerks. It's not any of the other stuff. X is a punk band, but, I mean, there are a hundred styles of music that sound like every L.A. neighborhood smashing up against each other at at once. And so, when you think about... Van Halen's ability to play alongside punks, that's because punk wasn't a, uh, it was like a a free-spirited thing, and it wasn't like you have to sound like the germs in order to be punk, right? Because there were so many weird, you know, things sort of like without the delineation of that. But it's also funny because sometimes when I listen to Atomic Punk, one of my favorite songs, I almost feel like he's pandering to that. (laughs) And you feel like he's trying to speak to that thing, and it's like, it's almost that thing where it's just like, just be it. You don't have to say it, Dave. <laughs> like... well, well, yeah, but they're so connected to that world because Rodney Bingenheimer yeah. helped to launch Van Halen. That's another weird twist in the early story of Van Halen because for people who don't know, Rodney Bingenheimer was originally a Sunset Strip kid in the 60s who then went on to uh, found a, a very famous, just a nightclub, called Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. And in the early 70s, it was like a glam club and Bowie would hang out there and Led Zeppelin would hang out there. Michael DeBar was on the podcast recently and he talked about going to Rodney's English Disco. So the fact that Rodney, and then and then Rodney becomes one of the most important new wave DJs on the planet, a man who was solely responsible for breaking so many of our favorite bands uh, in America, uh, he's probably the first person to play um, the Ramones on the radio. He's probably the first person to play No Doubt on the radio. I mean, Rodney Bingenheimer's uh, show was colossally important. Did you listen to Rodney when you were a young kid? I listened to Rodney later, not yeah. when I was younger. It was more like, I feel like, late teens, early 20s, when he was just like on midnight at that point, like K-Rock at midnight. Yeah. But I didn't grow up on it like a lot of people did. Yeah, but it's I just a, not, it's just such yeah. a weird twist in the Van Halen story that that he's a part of it too. Yeah, it's it you wouldn't think so, but that is those are the worlds they straddled. It's so amazing. In mid 1977, Mo Austin and Ted Templeman of Warner Brothers saw Van Halen perform at the Starwood. Although the audience was small, Austin and Templeman were impressed with Van Halen, and within a week, they offered the band a recording contract. The group recorded their debut album at Sunset Sound from mid-September to early October of 77, recording guitar parts for one week and then recording vocals for two additional weeks. All of the tracks were laid down with little overdubbing or double tracking. Minor mistakes were purposely left on the record and a simple musical setup was used to give the record a live feel. Upon its release in February of 1978, Van Halen reached number 19 on the Billboard Hot Music Charts and was highly regarded as both a heavy metal and rock album. 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on like just the recording of that at Sunset Sound and, and how yeah. that was done? I mean, I am, as somebody who grew up in recording studios and my life is spent in them now and the all of the minutia, all of the gear, all of the stories, the, the sight, the smell of old recording equipment, everything about it is like home to me. And I think it's the... Is it Niels Lazauer? How do you pronounce his name? The guy who did all the classic shots of, of VH. Um, his shots from Sound City, where you have those old cloth-covered gobo baffles behind them, Eddie's Marshall, his pedal board, the stack of Echoplexes, the empty bottles of Jack, um, you know, his guitars, all of them hanging out. Like, to me, it's... It speaks to a rawness of the the music and the process and the creation. And it's sort of before really the excess of, of 80s records. And it's so raw and it's so aggressive sounding. I mean, underpinned by the drum sound, that's the foundation. And my favorite part of Van Halen is, is you know, Alex. Um, but those sessions at Sunset Sound, I mean... I've posted those pictures online so many times and I have a photo book of Van Halen and so much of it is that. And to me, that just, I can, I can hear what it would be like to be in that room. I could smell it, everything about it. It's so visceral. And what you said about the, the recording, how Eddie would, would be playing his rhythm and then the rhythm would drop out to play a lead. Like it's just the antithesis of how things are done right now. And the fact that they were like, no, man, we're going to make it sound like this because live we're going to do it and we're going to do it better and we're going to kick your ass with it. And the idea of leaving in those mistakes and all of that, like, it's just so mind-bending to me because that record is, it's as much a mission statement as a, of a first record as any record I've ever heard. And like, not to go too deep in the weeds, but when you first hear just the bass thump of running with the devil and like what that announces, like you could be like Lester Bangs and just wax philosophic about what that is announcing. And then like what happens with that bass thump and drum fill. And then it comes in on the downbeat and it's just such a heavy record. And like, one last thing I'll say as I was thinking about that record today, because that's always going to be the record for me. And there's others that I love, but that was, I didn't experience it in real time because, you know, I was five years old. Um, I mean, I experienced it in real time because all the older people I hung out with were playing it, but it was really more like 79, 80 that I discovered it, right? Like sort of tail end of two going into women and children first when that record really became scripture to me. And it's never left me. I've always carried that record with me as something that I, was important to me. But when you think about like how even Jamie's crying, right? How Jamie's crying, think about it being sampled by Tone Loke when Matt Dyke produced that song and did Wild Thing, right? And had the overkill to where now we think of Jamie's crying and we kind of oh, skip past it. It's like some of the best Bob Marley songs you skip past because somebody, some of your college dorm buddy or somebody smoking out the car with you played that song too many times and you're sick of it. But you know what I thought of is as annoying as Jamie's crying is now because of overspinning it, the bridge is so fucking deep when they go into now jamie's been in love before and it goes to that sort of john densmore sort of door swing boom, 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 boom. and and 
it's just, they can turn emotions on a dime, dude. Like, that's so heavy, right? Like, even the song that you're bummed with, there's going to be one part that you go, oh my God, that's incredible. It's we're, crazy. In rock, we're in rock school with Justin Warfield. This is all that I wanted. This is all that I wanted. But I'm just going to say the greatest debut album, I think. I mean, it's. I've learned something from Michael DeBar, which is it's actually pointless to to talk about lists and who's no, better no, no. and who's best and underrated and overrated. But I will still contend that the top debut albums in rock, it's hard to mess with appetite, but Van Halen won. It's just, it's a flawless, it, 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 it changed a genre. <laughs> it changed hard rock. Yeah. And, it, you know, the fact that it made people, all the great music makes a young kid no matter if you're a boy or a girl, it makes you go in your room and try to figure out how to play it the day you get it. And the yeah. number of mostly young dudes who locked themselves in a room and tried to figure out what the fuck he was doing is profound. I want to hear from you. What is special about Sunset Sound? Okay, so real quick thought that came into my head just before I forget it is when you were saying how you can't sort of quantify on lists and best subs and all that, what Michael DeBar said and what you were saying, I would say this, when you compare Appetite and Van Halen 1, it's like saying Kobe and Jordan. Yeah, so right. undoubtedly, right, there's Kobe is special. Kobe is generational once in a lifetime and and, and touch people's hearts in a way that Michael Jordan never could through his sort of cold removedness, right? But ultimately, in the analogy, um, Van Halen 1 is Jordan, and there could be no Kobe without Jordan. So there could be no appetite without there already having been Van Halen 1. Uh, I'm so happy right now. This is the way to celebrate Eddie Van Halen's death. All right, so let's go back. Tell yeah, me what's so, so special Sunset about Sound. Sunset Sound. I don't have a, a huge, crazy history with the place. I honestly don't even think that I've been through the doors and I've had opportunities. So it's very odd, even friends recording there. But I mean, when you think about the fact that like Prince hold up in there, you know, peak Prince, I mean, I feel like 1999 was cut there. And for, for, you know, that's, you know, also Warner Brothers artists, also Mo Austin, Lenny Walker in that same camp. Cause honestly, the most important rock and roll of, you know, the seventies and I would say through the 90s was coming out of that little, you know, what we called the ski lodge and worn uh, uh, on a uh, Riverside. Yeah, maybe on Empire and Riverside or right over yeah. there up, yeah, Screenland, maybe. I forget mm -hmm. the name of the street, but I used to, I was signed to that label. And so that was a special building. And so going back to Sunset Sound, there's just a couple of places that had magic and it's like the village uh, rumbo recorders was in the valley owned by captain and Tennille, and that's where gnr cut some stuff right it was like amazing place right um in canoga park um i think canoga park yeah and then there was uh wally hyder which you know was another place where fleetwood mac cut you know some of their most important records um sunsets you know sunset sound was was like the preeminent place in the 70s where you would, and A&M, Henson was another one, but Sunset Sound was another place where a lot of the names of the records are escaping me, but that was like the sort of place where you'd want to be, where it was like, like no frills, the right board, you know, a great plate or echo chamber. Usually a lot of these places was like, who, what does the room sound like? What's the board? 
what's the echo chamber and who are the house engineers, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of came down to that. And, uh, you know, Sound City was another one. They're like, and so there was like five or six studios that were world-class and it's not that they were so fancy, they were so sexy, they were so sleek. They were just, it was the opposite of the laboratory lab coats of Abbey Road and the pristine, everything perfect and engineers around the clock working on everything. It's just like vibe. And I'm sure that in the 70s, Sunset Sound was like, a gnarly place that was like kind of unkempt and like kind of gnarly, but that's the sound you get from that record, right? Well, you wouldn't want to walk through uh, any of those places with a black light or a CSI tool that would uh, show you where all the bodily fluids uh, were, correct? Yeah, that's gnarly. (laughs) (laughs) The band spent a good chunk of 1978 opening for Black Sabbath, and soon established a reputation for their incendiary live performances. I remember seeing Eddie do that finger-tapping thing, Ozzy said, and that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone do that. Just when you think nobody can make guitar playing exciting, somebody like that comes out, and I saved you from my Ozzy impersonation. The band (laughs) then entered Sunset Studios again in December of 78, to record Van Halen 2, an album similar in style to their debut. That album was finished within a week and yielded the band's first hit single, Dance the Night Away. The Sheraton Inn of Madison, Wisconsin is thanked in the liner notes of Van Halen 2. The band stayed there on their first tour and destroyed the seventh floor by having fire extinguishing fights in the hallways and throwing TVs out the windows. Van Halen blamed those incidents on their tour mates at the time, Journey. (laughs) I just love the idea of late 70s Journey on the road with Van Halen, but more importantly, the legend of that Black Sabbath tour. Black Sabbath is falling apart in 1978 because Ozzy's addictions are at their all-time high. And what record would they have been on? That was the... um, that was the Never Say Die tour for Black Sabbath. Like okay. I, I actually have the, the poster of that. Uh, I have a German tour poster of that concert with the Van Halen logo in the bottom. But that was Never Say Die. Wow. Um, and, you know, they're going to basically, uh, you know, kick Ozzy out of the band after that tour is over. He missed a show. Oh, my God, I'm just blanking. He missed a show. I think it was Memphis because <laughs> he was in a different city because he'd been partying with Van Halen uh, because they're the young boys on the road. And partying like rock stars and that's sort of legend of that but you know that was the last time that van halen ever opened up for anybody so for me as a, as a fan of sabbath and van halen um i can't imagine what that night was like let me just say one thing about van halen please they never had and maybe you can speak to this because i saw them a few times back in the day they never had a quality opening band when I saw them on the Fair Warning tour, they it felt like they literally just found like five guys in Albuquerque and gave them equipment and just said, "Hey, go and open up for us." You know, well, and they, I think they that probably they, did. You're right. It, it just, <laughs> it's just, it's a weird thing because other bands don't do that. Like Ozzy, when he went out, he took Motley Crue out for one of their first national yeah. tours. Uh, he took Metallica out for one of their first national tours on Ultimate Sin. Even Kiss took out Kiss took out Rush. Uh, Kiss took out all kinds of you know quality bands. It's just a very interesting thing. But you know why that what what the 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 impetus to do so would be right? Tell me, you're cheap. Yeah. Oh, you're cheap. Yeah, that's the only reason. I'm just going to oh. be honest. So like as it as it like so like there are people who don't want competition, but just like without disparaging anybody, I just have to say, okay, like, from personal experience, there's two ways that 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 it's done. 
is historically when I had the ability, I was like, oh, I'm going on the road. Well, you can take whoever you want. Well, rather, if we can sell the place out, we don't need anybody to sell any tickets. So I'm going to expose the audience to what we like. So let's bring our friends. Let's bring our friends from LA. Or if we're on a national tour, do we have a friend in that city who's going to open? We're going to let them play on a stage in front of an audience that's bigger than they normally would, that's going to be there from doors, and they're going to have a great experience unlike they normally have. So you're either turning people on to music, you're breaking your friends, or they say, are you carrying support? Which means are you bringing like a, a support band? And if you say no, the promoter goes, oh, well, my, my little brother's band got a, got a thing and they're pretty good. And can you, they're like, yeah, man, whatever, put them on. Because then you're basically, they were either saying at that time, yeah, they can open, but we're not paying them, but we can give them a rider, right? Or they're saying like, yeah, yeah, cool, man. We'll give you 250 bucks. Like you get to, you get to play with us. So I, I, it's, I, it's, in it's all, all my financial life and rock. I've not, I, it's all financial. That's what yeah. you just said. Totally. Wow. That is, that is kind of mind blowing to me. Cause I always thought that it was about competition and not wanting to be upstaged by anybody. And my uh, guess is that Eddie and company were like, we're the best fucking rock band in the world. It doesn't matter who opens for us. They're coming for us. Put on whoever you want. We're going to be partying. We won't even be in the building when they're on. So when we take the stage, just make sure you're off of it. You can tell everybody you open for us. Good night. We're in rock school with Justin Warfield. Women and Children First is Van Halen's third studio album and was released on March 26, 1980. Produced again by Ted Templeman. It was the first Van Halen album to feature songs written solely by the band. Notable songs on the album include And the Cradle Will Rock and Everybody Wants Some. The band released their fourth studio album, Fair Warning, on April 29, 1981. Tensions rose during the recording of Fair Warning because Eddie's desire for more serious and complex songs was at odds with Roth's poppy style and sensibility. Nonetheless, Roth and producer Templeman acquiesced to Eddie's wishes. Unchained is on that record. Another quick note from me. I have, I do like to say better, better, and best. And top three shows for me is the Van Halen Fair Warning Tour in Albuquerque. I'm in eighth grade. Uh, one of my favorite images from that night is back then, uh, all the shows in Albuquerque, New Mexico were at the Tingley Coliseum on the New Mexico State Fairgrounds, which was smack dab in the middle of Albuquerque. And you could get there via the city bus, which is what we would all do before we were old enough to drive. And you would just have your mom pick you up at the McDonald's on uh, San Pedro and uh, Lomas, whatever. <laughs> but the greatest, the one of the most amazing things about that show was we're all, it's general admission, so you had to get there early, you know, at like three or four to be there when they open the doors and, and just go and grab your seat or grab your, your spot on the floor. I mean, it was chaos. There was no assigned seating. And it was like a, you know, a 12,000 seat rodeo arena. You know, when I first moved to New Mexico, Loretta Lynn played at uh, the Tingley Coliseum. Anyway, where there's a huge tree right next to the front door. And I just will never forget the sight and sound of the crowd cheering a little stoner Hesher kid from one of the local public high schools as he climbed this giant tree to then <laughs> jump from a branch into a second store window of this rodeo arena. And he had friends waiting inside and it really, everyone thought the kid was going to die and fall out of the tree, but he made it and he jumped. It was like, you know, parkour before parkour. He, 
you know, grabbed onto the window and his friends yanked him inside. And the, the, the specialness of that night for me was like, this was like the beginning of my teenage years, truly. You know, I'm at Van Halen uh, alone with my friends. We don't have parents. You know, the smell of weed is in the air. Van Halen was dangerous. The jocks had not truly discovered Van Halen at this point in 1981. They're going to come. They're coming very soon with Diver Down. You know, maybe the, the heavy drinking and pot smoking jocks, but <clears throat> the popular kids were not into Van Halen then. So it's just, but it's, it's just burned. That night is just so burned into my soul. And it was one of the first things I thought about when, when Eddie Van Halen passed away. Dude, there's, there's so much there. I mean, I can't add to it. That's really beautiful. All I know is that like in 19, that's 81, yeah? 81. Yep. So in 81, I was, I was eight years old and, and that's about when you start really seeing some shit around you, right? You're not, uh, you're not like a little baby and you're of an awareness. You just took me back. And that's the best compliment that I could say about it. It's so evocative. It's so real. You know, I, when you talked about the guy jumping off the tree into the window, I thought about the kind of people that go to Bob's Big Boy with cars from the 50s and 60s and sort of like harken back to the days of when they think things were great. Like, without getting too political, I mean, the 80s were fucked up for a lot of people and a lot of things, but the idea that you could get on your BMX bike and ride to your friend's house across town and go off curb cuts and jump some shit and smoke a dube and have this experience and maybe you were back for dinner. Like, the freedom, everything's different now. And as a parent, part of me is like, thank God. But as a parent, part of me is like, I do wish that my son had the ability to be at a, a venue and watch somebody climb a tree and hop in only to be cheered like some Richard Linklater scene, let his friends in the back door, have the experience of their life. Somebody probably puked on his vans and he got home late and he reeked of bong water and he had a story for the rest of his life. And to me, the one thing that I will always cherish about my age is that even if I didn't live that, I was in close proximity to it and I was there and I remember that era and it's a part that's my youth and 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 you're just a couple years older till you experienced it. And so to me, that's everything. That's that's it's everything. And that's all over the music, right? Yeah. Did you ever sneak um behind the hill behind the uh, the Greek theater to listen to a concert live? I didn't. Did you ever sneak into a show anywhere in LA? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I mean, I have to be super honest and say that I've been pretty spoiled in my lifetime with extraordinary access, either through family or friends or friend of a friend or just dumb luck. Um, but I, well, you I grew up in the industry. You yeah. you grew up in the industry. Yes, but having said that, I mean, I I played Coachella for the first time in 2006, but in 2004, I paid for a VIP ticket that is not V. If you don't, if you're listening and don't know, VIP just means you get to go to the beer garden and use a slightly better outhouse. It doesn't mean that you're backstage. So in 2004, I paid for my ticket and watched, you know, The Cure from the VIP. And in 2006, I co-headlined alongside Daft Punk and Depeche Mode. So even though I had a lifetime of access, that doesn't mean that 
I, I didn't pay for my GA tickets and go to concerts. Yeah. And so like sneaking in places, I mean, that was, that was everything. Of course we all snuck in places. I'm trying to think of shows that I snuck into though. Nothing really jumps out at me, but man, what you were talking about, I mean, so my awareness of Van Halen, if I actually think about real time experiences and not after the fact stuff, right? Women and Children First is when I became aware of them, right? So the picture I posted on on Instagram last night of my backyard birthday party where I'm wearing the, the, the Japanese kimono, blue kimono with no shirt underneath, long bell-bottom cords, right, in front of the Van Halen kick drum at the microphone. I asked my mom what year that was, and she was like, oh, I think you were six, whatever. I looked at it, and I was like, my friend was like, uh, oh, judging by the drum set, judging by this, I have to date that as between women and children first and fair and and probably women and children first, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe fair warning. So women and children first was was the most important Van Halen record of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and gotta be honest, age appropriate, it was probably ice cream man, right? <laughs> but the truth is, if you said what's the if you said what is but that but that's not really it, you know? So the the record that really, really, really changed my life for Van Halen is Could This Be Magic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could this be magic? If you said what one song reminds you of your childhood that's Van Halen, it's 150% Could This Be Magic? And I always called it Women and Children First. I never called it Could This Be Magic? But there's something to the melody of The Lonely Ships Upon the Water and then the response, Better Save the Women and Children First. Could this be magic? Or could this be love? You know that magic often does And I see lonely ships upon the water Better save the women and children first Sail away with someone's daughter Better save the women and children first and the blues element and the slide guitar, but there's something really plaintive and like, and uh, and there's sort of longing and sadness because so much for me of music is lyrics and melody, and then also moments. And so there's so many moments in music that emotionally ground me to something. And one moment in a song can make me love a song. I don't need to love a whole song. One moment will grab me, and I'm like, that's it. And it was "Lonely Ships Upon the Water." Better save the women and children first. The melody of that grabbed me. And looking back, like. You know, and all Lost Control also was like, I mean, Lost Control, I posted last night a, 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 an Instagram post and I did it, embedded the music in it. And there's Lost Control, Lost Control, Lost Control. Like, that is such a heavy song. Like, that's that side of, of, of Van Halen that I love. Like, Loss of Control speaks to me the same way Light Up the Sky does or DOA. And the same time, um, I'm the one. Like, I like it when they're fast and loud and gnarly and in your face. And here's the thing, going to your second point, 
I didn't experience fair warning in real time. I remember the record cover because I had a next door neighbor named Eric Raimheld and we had <laughs> we had a gate between our yards. And so when you went in my backyard, I had a massive backyard that was just like bamboo field in a backyard in a, in a garage covered in graffiti that I would thrash and jump off. And there's a little gate that went through and this is all in, in a West Toluca Lake. We called it North Hollywood then. And you would go, and so here's, all right, so since you're a Valley guy, I'm going to tell you exactly what it was. It was Hortense Street between Riverside Drive and Vineland, right? <laughs> Where that little Vineland is now with the bike path, I lived right off of that on Hortense, man. And so if you drive down that street now, there's like castles and shit. It's crazy, right? Yep. It's very, very weird. But that's the street I grew up on. There's about 30 kids on that street. No hyperbole. About, about 15 kids Okay, if I'm being real specific, there's probably 15 kids that lived on that street from five years younger than me to 15 years older. So I experienced Van Halen because I would walk out my backyard through the gate that was a gate in the middle of an ivy wall. And I would go into Eric Ramheld's backyard where he had a quarter pipe. He had a fort, those two stories where they would do their stoner, Hesher stuff. And he had a great like uh, bars in the windows that I was small enough to get under and I would pop off the screen and go into his room whether he was there or not. And I would hear the Van Halen riffs coming out of his, his room through his Mesa Boogie amp because he played guitar. So I experienced Van Halen 1 and Van Halen 2 and Women and Children first in real time as a little, little kid with a guy that was 11 years older letting me hang out with the big dudes. And so I remember the fair warning cover and it was kind of scary to me as a kid. That like face at the bottom, like right middle, I was like, that's kind of gnarly. Like it wasn't, and you know what's so crazy about the artwork and albums is the green of women and children first. That color green will always be women and children first green to me. Wow. Like if I see that color of sort of like a darker, like, um, I, like uh, I, we call it's like, um, as an ex-graffiti writer, the Krylon color, jungle green, it's somewhere between that and like a Sherwood green, but it's a weird sort of darker green teal. But that color is so imprinted in my head. And this time you're talking about, the real regret is that I never experienced Mean Street or Unchained in real time. You know what I mean? I was hanging out with Dave Kushner from Velvet Revolver last night and uh, just a local LA rock legend and dear friend. And 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 we, we were talking and and I was saying something and he said, Unchained. I was like, oh, it's so obvious, man. It's like, it's the go-to for rockers. But he's right. It's like yeah. the greatest rock song they ever wrote, right? And Mean Street and Unchained are the best. And it's just so fucked up that I didn't know that until much later. Because when I went back and discovered Fair Warning, I was like, oh, this is when they got serious. <laughs> I need, there's three things I need to say. One, you cannot afford a home on Hortense between Riverside and Vineland <laughs> anymore, people. It is all California farmhouses. Trust me, I walk my dog through that neighborhood every single morning. Two, uh, Sunday afternoon in the park drove me fucking crazy because the Albuquerque Academy Chargers used that song as their warm-up music, and it made me so mad because the jocks were listening to Van Halen. Three, uh, before I read uh, this last blurb about uh, Van Halen, one of the greatest objects that I've ever had in the history of my life that has been lost to the sands of time was the Coke mirror that I won at the New Mexico State Fair in September of 1980 by throwing a dart onto a star. And you could you could 
you could win the Aerosmith Coke mirror, you could win the Rush Coke mirror, and I chose I chose the 12 by 12 Van Halen Women and Children Coke mirror that had that beautiful green that Justin was describing. Here come the jocks. 1982's Diver Down, Van Halen's fifth album, performed better than Fair Warning and included the hit singles Pretty Woman and Dancing in the Street, both of which are covers. In 1983, the band earned a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for the highest paid single appearance of a band to that date. 1.5 million bucks for their closing set at the Us Festival. Despite this return to form, Roth and Eddie's differences continued, and this caused friction within other band members. Released on January 9th, 1984, 1984 was a commercial smash, going five times platinum after one year of release. Recorded at Eddie's newly built 5150 Studios, the album featured keyboards, which had been used sporadically on previous albums. The lead single, Jump, featured a synthesizer hook and became the band's first and only number one pop hit with Roth. Not long after the 1984 tour, Roth decided to leave the group and or was kicked out. Group members have given different answers for the split, but the reasons were rooted in control of the band's sound, image, singles released, and scheduling. And I would say to you, Justin, that is when my childhood died, and that is when I truly made the turn uh, from rock to indie rock, when Roth left Van Halen. I threw in for Sammy Hagar. I saw the 5150 tour at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I went and saw the uh, Monsters of Rock tour, OU812, which was Metallica, uh, Scorpions, and Van Halen at Alpine Valley, Wisconsin. But for me, when Roth left Van Halen, it was like, it was it was as bad as my parents' divorce. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, I got to be super honest. Like, that was the end of the road for me. And no disrespect to, you know, Van Hagar fans. Right. But um, look, like, for me, 1984 was... I. So like by like 82, most of the music that I started listening to started being keyboard driven, new wave, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I wasn't like, you know, wearing a cut off Levi's denim jacket with like a poodle mullet and like, you know, throwing my fist in the air because Eddie was playing an OBX with like really lush Prince keyboard pads on the songs. For me, it was literally music to my ears. So from the opening chords of that record, I was like, cool, you're evolving. I was already like into Duran Duran. Frankie goes to Hollywood, you know, and Soft Cell changed my life. And so I was into the Pet Shop Boys. I was into all that stuff. So this record was like a welcome thing for me. It was the merging of the two things I love. The only thing it wasn't in it was rapping and, and soul, right? Which one could argue one of the reasons why I had a debate with a friend last night who's an incredible musician and a lot of history and soul and he's brilliant. But he was just saying, how incredibly white Van Halen is. And to me, like, because of who Dave is and because, and this is like a white guy who's like very steeped in jazz and blues and has an incredible pedigree, but he's just funny. He's like, that's too white. And I was like, I don't know, man, like Eddie's right hand and his rhythm playing and the, 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 the heaviness of the rhythm section and Dave's um, sort of channeling of, of of black music as much as Mick was doing his best, you know, Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and strutting around the stage singing like a black bluesman from the South. I think there is an element of black music in Van Halen um, that, that people don't hear. But anyways, 
it had everything I wanted that record. I mean, for me, the Hot for Teacher video was the pinnacle of my, I was 11 years old and I was just like the kids that played young Eddie Alex Michael, uh, you know. Did you and, know uh, any of them? No, you would think, right? <laughs> yeah. You would think you would, it would think be like, you did. Yeah. yeah, you would think with my my life in L.A. I didn't know them, and I remember thinking, like, man, young Alex, man, he's so cool, and like that video, it was just so dope. And like, look, jump. If you, it's hard to separate. Like, you know, it's hard to separate the fans of something with the actual creation. It's hard to separate what something becomes once it's public domain versus what it was when it left the studio and landed on on vinyl, right? And so Jump is an incredible song and whatever we want to think about what the baggage attached, it's amazing. Same with Panama. I mean, Hot for Teacher though, I mean, I think most Van Halen people feel like the, that record really is crystallized by Hot for Teacher. I oh, mean, it, well, it has all the elements that make yeah. Van Halen the best. It's yeah. dangerous. It's the the subject matter is raunchy and risque. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 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 completely uh, taboo now. Yeah, you know, you go to prison if you're Hot for Teacher or vice yeah. versa. Yeah, but. Um, it's but just back so then, powerful. And it, it, it was an amazing video. You know, but to your point, you know, to bring it back, what you were saying about, you know, how you veered off into indie rock because Sammy Hagar entering the group was like a bridge too far. It's like, okay, well, now it's something else, right? And it took me years to appreciate the music of Van Hagar. I, I've never gotten behind the vocals. I just have to be honest. But even the production and the guitar playing and the songwriting of some of those songs is really dope. It's just hard for me to get to embrace Sammy. I mean, that's just the thing. Like I've never, like I can listen to some of those songs like, and go, wow, that's a great track or whatever. But when Eddie took his classical, you know, piano background and put it into this Oberheim synthesizer, which for listeners, the sound of the keyboard that he used on 1984 is the same synth um, a newer updated version of what Prince did most of his um, controversy and 1999 and Purple Rain records with. So it was the Oberheim OB8 and then it, or the OBX, then it became the OB8. So that's the same sound. And if you really go back and listen, what he did with that is just so dope. And I'll Wait is probably my favorite song on the record now. And, <laughs> They, by the way, they nailed I'll Wait uh, on the last show at the Hollywood Bowl. They nailed it. Like, really? It was one of the few songs that Roth was able to sing uh, properly yeah. instead of fucking it up and doing all his weird phrasing that he does yeah. in the modern era. Uh, that was one of the highlights of that night. Let me give you a couple. I'll give you a couple please, of B. Smith uh, remembrances of this time. Part of the reason that I also transitioned from Van Halen to the replacements was, you know, I wore... Uh, my jeans had to have the holes blown out in them in the 80s because of Eddie. And I had to have a No Bozo shirt because Eddie had a No Bozo shirt. When they toured with Hagar and they all came out on stage basically dressed in Benetton colors and <laughs> perhaps Benetton pants, that was into me. And the replacements looked like me. Right. Van Halen did not. My favorite story of the jocks taking over Van Halen is this. It's the 1984 tour. It's Albuquerque. It's the biggest fucking show to date. My mother stood in line at Sound Warehouse on Manal and San Mateo because I had to be at school to get tickets. Because back then, if you remember, they sold tickets in stacks. 
They didn't print out of a computer. They were just in stacks. And so my mom, God bless her, stood in line and got me and my brother tickets for Van Halen because we had to be in school. My friend Bill Meyer's mom, I think she worked for the New Mexico State Fair or she was on some board that got us an early entrance into Tingley Coliseum long before they opened up the doors. And we knew we weren't going to be, we're still little, I'm in 10th grade. There was no way that I was going to be up in the front because I would have been crushed. But we had perfect seats where you'd want to be on Eddie's side, you know, the first, the box of seats right off the floor. I, we told everybody at school that we would get there early and save seats. And, and there were probably 10, 12 people that we told uh, at school. We get in there, we save the seats, we wait an hour, and then they open the doors. And here are me, my brother Ryan Smith, who's in eighth grade, my friend Bill Meyer, who's smaller than me, and we are the only three kids trying to hold literally 10 seats, maybe 12. And the, the place is filling up, the place is filling up, the place is filling up. We've got coats and shirts on the seats. The place, is, <laughs> the place is filling up with adults and harder kids than us. And I'm sweating bullets because none of the kids from my high school are showing up. And here comes a big, giant football player from Sandia High School in a perfect Letterman jacket and his blonde girlfriend. And they come and they sit down in the two best seats in our little space. I have no ability to take on this football player. All I could do was kind of huff and puff and kind of pretend like I was throwing like a little tantrum, hoping that the guy would turn to me and say, oh, hey, I'm sorry, is there a problem? Am I sitting in your seats? And I would say yes, and he would leave. (laughs) That guy turned to me and he said, is there a problem? And I said, no, there's no problem. It sucks, but there's no problem. And, you know, he stayed there for the rest of the night. Uh, Luckily, my other friends did show up, but that was like one of my favorite things. But it was also emblematic of the jocks discovering Van Halen. And when the popular kids, for me as a rock nerd, when the popular kids discover your band, it's kind of over. Because I was that kind of snob back in the 80s. Yeah. No, I I, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) All right, Justin, I have had you for almost an hour and a half in this ridiculously special uh, celebration of Van Halen and what uh, Eddie Van Halen's music meant for the both of us. Um, Are there any sort of final thoughts that you want to throw out there as we wrap this thing up? Um, Yeah, like, I guess the last thing I would say is, like, we're we're mostly talking about the band, the culture around the band, the way the records impacted our lives and, you know, for more than a decade-shaped so much of our, our musical background and experience. And, 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 you know, a lot of people were posting on, on social media yesterday, shots of him, you know, with his head back in the air, you know, like mid solo. And he's so known as this groundbreaking guitar player and like a virtuoso of technique who pioneered sweet picking and tapping and all these incredible things and all the nerdy things that me and a couple of friends tweak out over, um, that make him really sonically special as a guitar player. Because if you're if you're a guitar player, you know the most important thing besides you know your feel is your tone. It's like chops are one thing, but if you don't have feel, then it's like all technique. It's like there's a huge difference between Ingve Malmsteen and somebody like Jimmy Page, right? One guy's got incredible chops, the other guy's sloppy as hell, but has feel, right? And like Page's feel is special. Eddie had swing and feel. And, you know, 
not to get name droppy, but just to sort of shine some light on some people. It's like my friend, Justin Metal Johnson, who has played with Nine Inch Nails and Beck and who's, you know, one of the biggest producers in the world. And is just this incredible bass player and all around musician. Um, you know, he was talking yesterday on Facebook about, you know, about Eddie's feel and Eddie's rhythm playing and how he's like, you know, nobody, everybody's talking about his solos or eruption, but I mean, the rhythm playing, you know, on Dead or Alive or all these songs, you know, I mean, it, that's the stuff that's special. The, uh, my, my friend, John Bates, the, the singer who has the band Big Black Delta, one of the most talented singer songwriters and musicians I know is we've been saying for many years that we were going to get matching Van Halen logo tattoos and we still haven't done it. You know, I was one of the first people I reached out to yesterday and I said, how you doing, man? And he goes, man, I was thinking of you. He goes, I have, I forgot to tell you, I bought you uh, a Van Halen medallion and our friend, Kevin Bish, who's a screenwriter. He was also like a sort of champion guitar player as a kid before he was a, a successful screenwriter. And we always have a, like a sort of three-way conversation about Van Halen. He said, I think Kevin got you one too, when we bought them a few years ago. And I said, oh, thank you, but I already have one, you know? And I said, but when are we going to get our tattoos? You know, cause we've been talking about getting that logo for so long. And I knew it was a heavy day for him. My friend, Manny Nieto from the band Distortion Felix, who's like a huge, and um, the Chavez Ravine, who's like a, a like a, a diehard Angelino who was one of the most important people to record and document indie rock over the last 20 years, but who posts pictures on social media of him with long hair, head back soloing because he was a Van Halen head. There's so many people who I know in so many different worlds of music who were touched by the guy. And it's not because he shredded, you know what I mean? It's not, you know, it. it's not because of any of that stuff. It's because the songs and the culture and the feelings and the band and all of that was about Eddie because it bore his name, right? And so we'd be remiss in not saying that it was really him and Alex. Like, no matter who was singing, ultimately, it's like somehow, even when you get rid of Dave, you still have the harmonies, right? And you still have that thumping snare drum and you have this thing. And it touched so many of us in, in such a deep way that while the sort of academics and critics and really pretentious fucking people will never lament his loss the way they would Lou Reed or David Bowie, his stature is really the same culturally. Because if you talk about the impact somebody makes on the planet, he made a really big imprint on people and he impacted all of our lives in a special way. And whether that person is like, man, I really like Jump or Eruptions Killer or that song changed my life or whether it's the song, you know, your memory of, of, of the show in Albuquerque, we all have a common thread and that dude was it. And as an Angelino, growing up, like, that was our band. You know what I mean? That was our thing. And I wasn't old enough to experience it in the same ways that my next-door neighbors were and the guys who turned me on. But I will end with this. When I met my wife, my soon-to-be wife, when we went out on our first date or two, and we were discussing life and, you know, you know how do you feel about kids and marriage? And how do you feel about this and what a music, you know? 
when I picked her up for her first day, you know, like MTV, like whatever MTV raps at the time was, whatever the rap program was playing hip hop was on the TV. I thought that was a great sign. But when we, and we, we started talking about music at one point, we, Van Halen came up. And she really fucking loved Van Halen. And she was really into early Van Halen. And I was like, oh, well, then we're good. Like, <laughs> because that was just, that just showed me. I was like, okay, well, if you're into Van Halen, then we're cool. Because you get it. You grew up in the Van Halen homeland. Yeah. They hone their chops at little shitty bars on Van Nuys Boulevard. That's crazy. That are long gone. You grew up in the Van Halen homeland. I cannot imagine a place that was more that was more Van Halen in the 80s than the San Fernando Valley. Let me just wrap up with two last things. I just want to say to people, one of my favorite shirts in my life was my Fair Warning tour shirt. I was a little guy in eighth grade, but I bought an XL hoping to have it as an adult. When I wore it to school, I would bring another shirt with me because if I would start to sweat, I would immediately take that shirt off and wear the replacement because I didn't want to fuck it up. That's what Van Halen means to me. Also, back in the 80s, if I got the high score on Pac-Man, Space Invaders, or Donkey Kong, my initials were always E-V-H. E-V-H forever. Justin, you have... Once again, given me the gift of your time and your knowledge, your experience. Um, I love you so much. This has been the best way for me to celebrate the life of Eddie Van Halen. And I'm, I'm just buzzing. This is how I want to spend my time. So I'm profoundly grateful to you. Is there anything that you want to promote or where can people follow you or, you know, what's coming down the pike? And then I'll let you go. Man, EVH forever. That's it, dude. Well, there you go. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to the BrandoCast. Uh, so don't forget to like, subscribe. As always, the BrandoCast is produced by Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Thank you.